The various passes and routes of Hindu Kush mountains brought in a number of nomadic looters and traders from Arab and Turkey. They brought their Islamic beliefs to India. Over centuries, Islam has seeped deeper into the present-day Indian subconsciousness and into the subcultures, economy, politics, identity and religion. So much so that it can't be separated from the essence of South Asia and most importantly, the essence of India. Hello and welcome. This is Indian Art History by MASH Podcast and I am your host Ayushi. Prithviraj Chauhan had taken over the resplendent fortification Lal Court, situated in modern-day south of Delhi. He called his fortified city Kila Rai Pithoda. This was arguably the first city of Delhi. The geography and politics of Delhi was getting popular, not just among the Rajasthani Rajputs, but also among the Islamic invaders and rulers from Central Asia. It gave the rulers a strategic access to the rest of India. Not only were other parts of India and its kingdoms geographically accessible from Delhi now, but they were also politically accessible. Whoever ruled Delhi thought that they were at the top of the world. And as the connectivity with Central Asia and West Asia was being established through invasion and loot, it became clear that Delhi also provided access to that side of the world. Times were changing. This was in 1192, when Muhammad Ghori defeated Prithviraj Chauhan's army. These were important events that inspired a number of folklores in India woven around Prithviraj and Ghori. When Ghori returned to his hometown Ghazni, he left behind his general and viceroy Kutubuddin Ebak. Ebak established in India his own dynasty, what we now know as the Mamluk dynasty. This was the start of the Delhi Sultanate. When Kutubuddin Ebak was a child, he was sold as a slave in Turkestan. Very early on, Ebak developed a military career in various armies and rose to become the general of the Gurids. Mamluk basically means slave. When Ebak came to the Rajput city of Kilarai Pithoda and Lalkot, he saw a lot of Hindu and Jain temple structures. The first thing he did to establish his new accomplishment was that he built a mosque using the material from 27 Jain temples he commanded for destruction. These temples had numerous pillars with beautiful figurative carvings of heavenly beings and floral patterns. For making of the mosque, many of these figures were defaced as idol worship is against Islam. It is interesting to see that the rest of the figures were left intact except for the face. He called the mosque Kuwat ul Islam, which became arguably the first mosque in India. Qutub Minar was built in the same complex. Qutub Minar is inspired by the Minar of Jam in Ghor district in Afghanistan. This minar, however, faces danger of collapse as the land on which it is made is prone to heavy erosion which is the Minar of Jam, not the Qutub Minar. The architecture from here on develops as fusion in tandem with both Buddhist and Hindu aesthetics, as well as the geometric beauty of Islam. Throughout North India, such specimens of architecture rose in the form of mosques, tombs, palaces, gardens and many other forms. 
finally when the mughals came they already had a long line of islamic structures to study and take inspirations for their own structures but apart from building architectural wonders that are still standing they developed robust painting schools it all started during the exile years of humayun he had taken asylum in the court of shah tamas safi of persia Apart from the gossip that went around in the Persian court about their guests, Humayun found himself quite fascinated with the painting traditions and practices at the court. So much so that on his return and successful regurgitation as the new ruler of Delhi, he brought back two master painters from Persia, Sahab Janab Mir Syed Ali and Abdus Samad. Both of them were getting paid loftily by the newly re-founded Mughal Empire for nurturing a school of Indian painters. Humayun died a year later in an accident falling off the staircase and meanwhile Akbar took over at a very young age. Once on his way back to India from Persia while making a stop at Kabul, Akbar took drawing lessons. He quite enjoyed them for this helped him develop a liking for art and painting. Akbar could not read and write however he developed sharp and charitable views on the arts culture religion much of it finds mention in Akbarnama The Mughal school of painting under Akbar employed 100 artists working under the guidance of Persian masters throughout his lifetime he had commissioned 24000 illustrated manuscripts once Akbar invited Jesuit priests from Goa to his court They brought with them illustrated bibles and Akbar got inspired which is when many elements of obvious european influence showed appearance in the miniature paintings since most of the painters who enrolled in the school were hindus so a lot of what they knew of their hindu aesthetic found home in the miniature paintings that they painted The school also derived inspirations from indigenous painting traditions popular amongst the Buddhist Hindus, Jains and the Sultanate. The Persian style got mixed into these to form a unique style of painting called the miniature paintings. The miniature paintings too like many other visual cultures of India are narrative in nature. They often are tellers of a story new or old. Vidya Dahejia in her book Indian Art writes Painters sat on the ground with one knee flexed to support a drawing board upon which they applied watercolors to paper From childhood they were taught how to make paint brushes from bird quills set with fine hairs plucked from kittens or baby squirrels They learned how to grind mineral pigments in a mortar and to prepare the binding medium of glue Pigments were also made from earths and from insect and animal matters. To make metallic pigments gold, silver and copper were pounded in foil which was then ground in a mortar together with salt. When washed with water the salt dissolved leaving only pure metal powder. Some artists like Basavan were specially skilled in the application of gold which they pricked with the stylus to make it glitter. Paintings were burnished by laying them painted side down on a hard smooth surface and stroking them firmly with polished crystal. Burnishing provided a protective hardening comparable with varnishing and oil painting. 
Akbar's workshop, like its Iranian counterparts, accumulated a stock of sketches and tracings that could be used to produce new paintings. Tracing was an accepted technique. Transparent gazelle skin was placed on a drawing whose contours were transferred to the skin by pricking with a pin. The tracing skin was then placed on fresh paper and black pigment forced through the pinholes to create an outline. Paintings seem to have taken considerable time to complete. One marginal notation speaks of 50 days worth of work. Once paintings had been burnished, they were handed to other specialists who um, mounted them on decorative borders and bound them into a book or album. This was Vidya Dahijia writing in her book Indian Art, which takes us into the practical world of the miniature artists. Abul Fazl documented the daily activities of Akbar in Akbarnama. This was an illustrated biography where most of the compositions were composed by Basavan. On many pages of Akbarnama, Basavan has used a diagonal perspective as the river, water, animals, boats, military, men, etc. move across the composition diagonally. This effectively expands the usage of pictorial space while also makes the movement appear more agile. One of the most prolific manuscripts that came into existence during Akbar's reign was Hamza Nama. There were many biographies written during the time of the Mughal emperors, but this particular one, Dastani Amir Hamza, was about Hamza. The manuscript was fairly large and one might say quite theatrical as well. The paintings were usually followed by text at its back. The paintings here were filled with characters consisting of heroines, heroes, demons, sorcerers, fairies, spies, tricksters, etc. etc. As many of the resources in the stories of Hamza Nama say, Musharraf Ali Faruqi puts it more succinctly. He says, that was my first introduction to the devs, jinns, peris, cow-footed creatures, horse-headed beasts and elephant-eared folks. And these characters were always painted in the midst of some or the other action, generally involving a lot of body movement. It is fun to see some of its action-packed scenes reveling in drama. Not only are the characters dashing, making an escape, fighting, performing a trick, but are also making dramatic expressions. So who is Hamza anyway? Many kids who grew up listening to the stories of Hamza would know exactly who Hamza is. Hamza ibn Muttalib was uncle of Prophet Muhammad. His stories have been passed down as oral traditions through storytelling. And over the time of being narrated for about a thousand years by many tellers, the story gained many magical and fantastical elements of fictional tonality. I was able to grab a copy of The Adventures of Amir Hamza, translated in English by Musharraf Ali Faruqi. I have been reading it ever since and even when I'm not reading it, I'm still living the story. He says, Finally, I discovered the most popular one-volume version of the Dastane Amir Hamza, first published by Ghalib Laknavi in 1855 and amended by Abdullah Bilgrami in 1871. Neither one of them were authors in the sense we understand today. They were compilers of this oral dastan and in the process they rewrote and expanded the story. But first, 
Akbar ordained a manuscript describing and illustrating the adventures of Amir Hamza. It consisted of 1400 large pages of illustrations painted on cloth backed by inscriptions in Nastaliq that described the scene. Today 200 of these are known to be with collections of white people as usual worldwide. No surprises for us there. The characters bend and move and jump and fight and sit poignantly and serve and plot and perform magic and do many other things in these folios. The motion in the body is fabulous to the extent that it's exactly discernible as to what each of them is doing. And each folio is filled with many many characters, sometimes more than 10. I love that each character was given special importance as each is seen engaged in some kind of activity acquiring a wholesome posture in their own regard relentlessly adding to the narrative however there is something else that adds to the narrative the inescapable landscape and architecture of magic surrounded by peculiar trees and animals and half animal half human creatures Paintings often unknowingly or knowingly document the landscape architecture and material culture of the time that they are painted in even though the subject of the paintings could be much much older as a result we have 5th century hamza his lovers enemies friends and family dressed in 15th century indo persian attire inhabiting spaces of indo persian architecture set in a landscape local to north of india during the reign of akbar i have always been an ardent reader of fantastical fiction for i have always found myself apparated into that world through reading lately i have been doing that with miniature paintings too the folios of hamza nama are very detailed and they use a color palette that adds on to the magical quality of the story of hamza I find myself doing that with just about any miniature painting narrating countless indian tales and so i find myself inside the paintings looking at the scenes up close letting some colors dissolve into me while letting some colors stare at me with mutual wonder thank you so much for listening This is Indian Art History by Mash Podcast.